Hola, new listeners. There's a bunch of you lately. Cool, huh? And so we're bringing back one of our favorite episodes from earlier this year for you to hear. It's got punk, it's got arson, it's got libraries. And then stick around for a brand new segment at the end. The Paralympics have begun and we'll hear from a member of Team USA. I'm Gustavo Ariano, and you're listening to The Times, daily news from the Los Angeles Times. Today's Friday, August 27, 2021. Suicide bombers in Kabul killed dozens of people, including at least 13 American military members. More wildfires rage in California. One approaches South Lake Tahoe, another is near Fontana. And a class action lawsuit is filed against Frito-Lay, alleging their hint of lime chips doesn't have any lime. Damn, just wait until the plaintiffs taste flaming hot Cheetos. And now, the episode. Take it away, Pass Gustavo. What a year it's been for the Los Angeles Public Library. And we're not just talking about the coronavirus pandemic. For Joe Biden's inauguration, L.A. poet Amanda Gorman delivered a rousing, inspirational poem that earned universal praise. She first got her start with youth poetry competitions at the L.A. Public Library, or LAPL for short. And then this spring, a teen and preteen punk band from L.A. called the Linda Lindas went viral, all thanks to a 90-second song called Racist Sexist Boy. The location for the video shoot? An L.A. Public Library branch, of course. LAPL is changing the very idea of what a library is, and bookworms the world over are paying attention. Just ask my fellow LA Times columnist and proud Angelina, Pat Morrison. The world takes out library cards for Los Angeles so it can sign on to the library site. Angelinos need to respect the fact that the world cherishes our library, and we need to embrace it in turn. We'll hear more from Pat on the birth of the city's modern library system. But first, we'll talk to L.A. librarian Kevin Awakuni about how the LAPL fostered an innovative space for creatives like the Linda Lindas to go big. Kevin Awakuni is the adult librarian in the Exploration and Creativity Department for the L.A. Public Library. He's based out of the Historic Central Branch. He was key in booking the Linda Lindas for a library concert. They're a multi-ethnic punk quartet, teen and preteen girls. And now they're worldwide. So first of all, it was a team collaborative effort, but I have a son who's in the seventh grade and one of the Linda Lindas just happens to be in his class. So her name is Eloise. I've known Eloise and her parents since she was in kindergarten because they just went to class together. And when I moved into this position, since I had a relationship with Eloise and the parents, um, we just all worked very collaboratively to kind of put this mini concert together. And since the Linda Linders were all such heavy library users, we thought it would be super cool and, you know, kind of edgy to have like this all-girl punk band, you know, you know, rock out in a library. You know, the Linda Lindas, I I always felt like were already kind of on a trajectory of their own to be successful. Like they had opened for Bikini Kill. They had starred in the movie Moxie. And um, when their video took off, the viralness of it was unexpected. But the fact that they are already so cool and they have such a great sound, 
they're they're awesome. They're they're an awesome group of girls, and they they have like awesome music. And so I was just really happily surprised about how it came out. It also gave the members Eloise, Mila, Lucia, and Bella a chance to give some love back to the LAPL. Here they are during a Q and A they recorded with Kevin and senior librarian Candice Mack. You guys are all big library users, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 I like to like get twenty books at a time from the library, like pick up from the Silver Lake Library. Okay. What about what about the others? Which <laughs> which library branches are you guys been going to? I live near the Silver Lake branch, so I can just walk over there and pick up my art. Lucia and I both use the same library. Yeah. Um, I used to go to the South Pass one, but since it's not open right now, that's okay. You can come to LA. Yeah, LAPLs. We can get you a car. <laughs> What do your bosses think about this viral moment? I mean, it's a lot to take in. I'm sure they love it. It's like, oh my God, like here's this teen punk band getting all this attention. And by the way, it's also getting attention for the LA Public Library. We're always about just trying to promote all of the resources that we have. I feel like we're one of the few institutions where we don't ask anything. All we want to do is give things. Like we don't, there's nothing transactional. You come in and you can take as much as the limits allow you to take. Like we, we're always constantly pushing that. But as far as like how the Linda Lindas and I think it's the most popular post that we've ever done in the short time that we've been on social media. I mean, it was, it was crazy. We're trying to take it all in. <laughs> Then the second most popular one, arguably, is in some ways as important, if not more, which is, and I loved it, was that tweet with Amanda Gorman, a picture of her when she was younger, how it started, and then her at the inauguration, how is it going? It was such a wholesome, beautiful tweet. And of course, that went crazy as well. Right, right. And Amanda Gorman is kind of a singular being also in and of herself. Like, along with the Linda Lindas, like Amanda Gorman was always going to be successful, incredibly driven. And we happened to provide a venue and an environment where she could grow into her own being. But um, just yeah, singularities, they're, they're, they're unique unto themselves. And um, well, I guess we're just really happy to be a part of their success in some small way. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the West. We will rise from the windswept Northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked South. We will rebuild. And in case you need a reminder, here's L.A. poet Amanda Gorman, another LAPL alum, from her appearance at President Joe Biden's inauguration in January of this year will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. We're always just striving to, uh, at least for our LA Made platform, the cultural streaming platform that the Linda Lindas were on. We're always just looking to elevate voices to underrepresented voices in Los Angeles. Like we're always looking to promote people that should be heard. Again, it's about that idea of giving just a, a, a broad range of viewpoints, just like as a branch librarian, what I would do and someone would ask, what am I reading? And I would, you know, just give several selections of books they may haven't read. And then sometimes I also feel like with those underrepresented voices, the best ones are always reminding people that, oh, that person is like me. Oh, you know what? I'm not alone with my thoughts. I'm not alone with my feelings. And the best stories and the best performances bring those out. 
I guess there was things about Amanda Gorman and the Linda Lindas in particular that people just really resonated with. And it, you know, it kind of spoke to that idea of those thoughts that I've had, those feelings that I've had, I'm not alone with them. You're, you're a typical librarian. You're beyond humble. Come on, let's speak up the LA Public <laughs> Library. Why are you folks so amazing and magnificent? We do do like a crazy amount of things. Like I said, we do the Maker Fair where we bring in all the different makers and they come into Central Library. We do like your author series where we highlight different authors every week and give them a platform to also uh, speak. So many of the library employees, when the COVID situation happened, went into disaster service work. So a lot of them went into contact tracing. A lot of them ran the meals hotline, vaccination information. So like there's really no end to the amount of things that the library kind of is constantly innovating to kind of push and just trying to be a, a good public service to the community of Los Angeles, to the city of Los Angeles, just trying to do, just trying to do the most, you know, trying to help as many people as we can, trying to be as fun and creative and weird and just being there for people. And as we're opening up all the different libraries, you know, it's been really gratifying to just see all the patrons have it be integrated as part of their life again. Thank you so much for this interview, Kevin. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, a library on fire, hundreds of thousands of books burned, how a catastrophic inferno 35 years ago helped turn LA into a city of fierce public library supporters. There are many symbols of Los Angeles that are known worldwide, but one of the more unsung ones is the LA Public Library. It's made cameos in TV and film, holds hundreds of events, not all of them literary, every year, and hosted nearly 11 million visitors in 2019 alone. All of this has reflected a city perpetually in change, a city that goes on to influence the rest of the country, even in something as seemingly boring as a library. To talk about this influence and legacy is Pat Morrison, my fellow columnista here at the LA Times. She's also the host of the LA Times podcast, It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. Pat, welcome to the Times. Gustavo, what a pleasure. <laughs> Pat, you're an Angelina, pure and pure, straightforward. How have you seen LA's libraries evolve in your lifetime? Well, the city fathers of the last century, actually two centuries ago now, the 19th century, decided that if we're going to be a big, classy city, we had to have a library. Now, it didn't start out like much, but the need for a library grew. And so we began to identify ourselves as a literate city. And so what happened to the library years later was, in a sense, a challenge to our own sense of identity as Angelinos. These days, uh, LAPL is also creating viral moments like the most recent one. You know, we, we mentioned Amanda Gorman, the poet who read at Joe Biden's inauguration. Recently, the Linda Lindas, a teen punk band, had a rousing performance at the L.A. Public Library Cypress Park branch. Is this the kind of thing that libraries need to do now to remain relevant? I think they have to do it. And I think the L.A. Public Library is setting an example in a city where we don't have a lot of public spaces, where we don't have a lot of gathering spaces. A library is a natural starting point and reaching out with music, reaching out with anything you might want a public space to provide, a safe space to provide is something Los Angeles has been yearning for and looking for for years. And the library has stepped into that role in a big way. 
And everyone, of course, has their branch library, has their favorite library. But at the end, all roads lead to this central library. And describe the central library, especially for folks who are not from Southern California. The central library in the heart of downtown Los Angeles is a kind of weird looking, almost Egyptian looking building that was designed by a man named Bertram Goodhue, who also designed his other claim to fame, the legislature in Nebraska. There's your Jeopardy question if you're looking for it. (laughs) So you have this library with its gold mosaic um, pyramid at the top, symbolizing the knowledge that you would find in the building below. I get excited just talking about it now. Yeah, this mishmash of styles, very L.A. in in its own way. And the Central Library got worldwide attention, unfortunately, in 1986 with an epic fire that burned at least 400,000 books and really damaged the building. And that actually sparked a lot of worldwide goodwill, especially a telethon that was hosted by the legendary televangelist Dr. Gene Scott. How important do you think was that disaster to change people's mindsets of what Los Angeles actually is? You know, Joni Mitchell told us you don't know what you got till it's gone. And that's pretty much what happened with the library and the library fire. It was that fire in April 1986, an arson fire. And Gustavo, I've covered so many horrible stories. This is the only story I remember crying while I was covering it, standing across the street, looking at the library burn. I still get chills thinking about it. The fact that it was an arson fire, it wasn't an accidental fire, that someone would burn a library. And embedded in our history, we know that burning libraries, it's like burning your culture. It happened in Alexandria with the library there. It happened in World War I when the Germans burned the library at Louvain. We take it personally. And that's what happened with Los Angeles. We thought, do we really want to be the kind of city that sees its library burning and says, meh, we can just move on from here. The city rose to the challenge, raised money. This was something that people could physically volunteer to help out, and they did. It was truly remarkable. How do you think it changed LA's conception of itself? I think it showed Los Angeles that the city does matter to us, that our sense of identity is invested in parts of the physical city, at least, and that we as Angelinos can do something individually. Little kids donated money. Corporate leaders stepped in and said, we're going to help out as well. And I think that made a difference because you saw your neighbor saying, I want to do something about that. And you felt that you wanted to do something too. Totally. And in the decades since, as you said, the LA Public Library just rose to the challenge. Los Angeles rose to the challenge. Now the LAPL is seen as one of the great library systems in America, if not the world. And you, of course, have been a longtime champion of it. What should people know about it in terms of its importance to LA and its influence nationwide? People need to redefine in their own heads what library means. It isn't just a place where you walk in and the smell of books overwhelms you and the presence of books makes you think, oh, geez, where do I start? This library, as a new library, as a rebuilt library, dedicated itself to not turning inward, but turning outward to the community, to bringing the community to it, to embracing it. Young kids, even homeless people who sit in the library and read for hours, people who can find in the library things they can't find anywhere else, collections that exist nowhere else in the entire country, that the library is more than just books and shelves. It is the heart of Los Angeles and the promise of Los Angeles. People who want to get a high school diploma can go to the library 
and learn and prepare and study. Kids can take time away from home if they don't have the internet. Homeless kids show up there. And you know, when the library closes at night, those homeless kids will sit on the steps next to the door to pick up an internet signal so they can do their homework on their laptops. That's how important that this library is for the city and for the people that we don't even think of as the city, the underserved part of Los Angeles. The library's there for them too. And that goodwill by the library, again, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm thinking in Spanish right now, but it's it, an example that other library systems, especially when it comes to the unhoused, have adopted. And especially you mentioned the high school diploma. L.A. Public Library was the first library system in the country to offer a program like that. Imagine that the city library is saying to its people, we are the resource for you. We can help you work your path to citizenship. We can help you study for a driver's license. If you're going to trade school, this is the place that can help to teach you how to learn these trades, these abilities. If you're going to college, the same thing. And if you want, you can find anything here because we will find it for you. The library partners with the city in a way that is just remarkable. The library is the heart and soul and also the nervous system of a region. I think it has to be. I think because it is a public space, it's not a private space. It's not a club that you have to pay to belong to. It's not a theater that you have to pay to enter. It is there for you, Los Angeles. The world takes out library cards for Los Angeles so it can sign on to the library site and say, I'm looking for this. What do you have about that? Angelinos need to respect the fact that the world cherishes our library and we need to embrace it in turn. Thank you so much for this interview, Pat. Un placer. Now to the Tokyo Paralympic Games. We're going to hear from a member of Team USA about his sport, about his dreams as he gets ready to compete against the best in the world. My name is Chuck Aoki. I'm a three-time US Paralympian in the sport of wheelchair rugby and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I first began playing wheelchair rugby when I was 15 years old. In high school, I saw a documentary called Murder Ball, which was about the 2004 Paralympic team. And I saw guys smashing into each other and knocking each other around. What was so special for me about seeing the documentary Murder Ball and, and sort of witnessing that at a really challenging time in my life. I was actually in the hospital when I first heard about it from an injury that I'd had. And I was at a point where for me, it was like, man, like I keep getting hurt. I can't stay healthy. I'm never gonna be able to achieve the things I want to achieve. And suddenly I saw this movie with these, these guys who are full-time athletes, they're Paralympians and they're living their lives. You know, they have disabilities similar to mine, a little different, but with similar challenges challenges with function in our hands. And it was really the first time I saw, wow, I feel like I could belong in this sport. 
my disability is something very long and confusing. It's called hereditary sensory autonomic neuropathy type 2, which is a lot of words that mean something pretty simple. I basically have no sensation in my uh, most of my arms and most of my legs. And so when I was a kid, you know, I grew up loving sports. I, pl- I tried to play baseball, soccer, all th- kinds of things, but I would injure myself because I couldn't feel my body, basically. I would break my leg, walk on it, all kinds of stuff like that. And that's what led to me playing wheelchair sports. And so I started playing Paralympic sports. My first sport was basketball. I tried everything else, track, softball, uh, field, you name it. I tried it, but rugby is what I, I finally truly fell in love with. So in wheelchair rugby, like all Paralympic sports, we have classifications. And so each player is rated based on their disability. And so I'm what we would call a high point player. I'm worth three points on the court out of a total of eight we can have. So it's my job as a high point player to, I carry the ball a lot. I guard the other team's best player. I do a lot of the scoring, that sort of thing. Sort of like a mix of a quarterback and a point guard, if you want to use other sports metaphors, kind of a mix of that because of my classification. More function means you have more to do, basically. So my first Paralympic Games was in uh, London in 2012, and that was just a whirlwind for me, really. It was, things are happening, we're getting moved from place to place. It was sort of like, what is going on? I don't even know what's happening. Unfortunately, you know, we had a bronze medal. We came in ranked number one, and our goal was gold, and our goal is always gold. My second games in Rio, I tried to do a little more of appreciating of the moment and kind of just taking it one step at a time. And so Rio was a really special game for me. I was more of a veteran leader on the team. I'd, you know, I'd been around the block once. We had a lot of new athletes that time around. And so I was kind of taking on a different role of kind of being in charge and helping guys kind of shepherd through the process of, hey, what do we do right now? We're just sitting here. I'm like, you do a lot of sitting around at the Paralympics, believe it or not. We took home a silver medal. We made double overtime final against Australia, which was certainly frustrating to lose, but at the same time, we, we gave it our all. So when it comes to Tokyo, my goal is to, first and foremost, our goal is to win a gold medal. I have a bronze medal, I have a silver medal. I'm just missing the gold to have a, a full set of them, which would look nice on my shelf. And then, you know, at the same time, the goal, like all these things, I think, is to enjoy and embrace the moment. The Paralympics are this one time where literally people from all over the world come together and they're watching it on TV. We're all there in the village. And it's this one time you really feel part of a global community, which is a really unique feeling. Even though Tokyo is going to be very different, of course, with no fans and very limited movement for ourselves, the goal is really to just appreciate the moment and really just enjoy what we're going through and say, this is fun, guys. We're getting to be the best at what we do. We're getting to celebrate together. We're getting to be a part of this amazing experience, represent our country. This isn't something we'll get to do the rest of our lives. And so I think as a still veteran athlete now today, I'm 30, really being able to sort of to teach guys about appreciating the moment and just taking it one day at a time and just loving what we're doing and having fun with it. Wishing all of our athletes the best of luck. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, Marina Peña. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. Ashley Brown produced the athlete profile. And Stephen A. Cuevas, Abby Fenter Swanson, and Julia Turner contributed to the library segments. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to the Linda Lindas and the LA Public Library. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Please don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. 
I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in this Madre. Gracias.